Hi, I'm Tom Woods, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm Doug Stewart, and I want to talk to you with a guest here in a minute. I'll introduce him about engaging in electoral politics. The question we often get from our listeners, from our readers, is what kind of engagement in the political sphere in terms of electoral politics in the realm of voting, in the realm of activism, what does that mean for the libertarian Christian? And, you know, the answer is many different options, of course. You know, you could actually engage in uh, voting and activism and, you know, pushing a particular candidate. You could actually say, you know what, voting is bad or voting is not for me or, you know, voting at the high levels of government like, you know, president and so forth is not great, but maybe voting locally or maybe even running for an office, a local office. There's libertarian candidates who want to run for local office to sort of gain a lot of ground there. So there's a lot of options out there for a libertarian Christian to think about. But what's interesting to me is that there are so many ways to kind of tackle the issue of liberty and gain momentum in the world in the culture and in politics that can be variously effective. And I have a guest on here who is partial to the Mises Caucus, and and we'll get into his leanings there. And as we begin to discuss this, I do have to make this disclaimer that the Libertarian Christian Institute, we're not endorsing the Mises Caucus, we're not rejecting them, we're not we're not endorsing any political candidate or particular party. So as we begin having this conversation, it's probably going to be, you're going to hear me be friendly to the Libertarian Party, but that doesn't mean that we as an organization are going to sort of endorse that. So that's just sort of a disclaimer that we want to put out there at first. So let me introduce my guest. His name is Jacob Daniel Winograd, and he is a state organizer for the Mises Caucus in Pennsylvania. And he is also the host of the podcast, Daniel 3 Biblical Anarchy. Jacob, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Doug. Big fan of you guys. Also love the book you guys put out last year, Faith Seeking Freedom. I've uh, tried to push that on all my uh, members of my congregation and uh, friends of mine who are Christian and haven't yet seen the the light of libertarianism. Have you had any success? Any any takers? Not too many yet. I mean, I got my pastor and my associate pastor to read it, and you know, they gave me some kind of generic. Oh, it was a very interesting read. <laughs> and uh, you planting know, seeds, my friend. <laughs> yeah, planting seeds. You know, it's unfortunately it's kind of like one of those things where it's like I have a lot more success. It seems like reaching people who aren't in my like immediate local sphere. It's like the people that I know personally are the ones that it seems hardest to uh, to gain yeah. any ground with. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. I kind of have a theory for that where I think they want to remain friends with you. <laughs> I had a coworker once. This is at a previous employer. She was not in my department, if you will. And then she became sort of a co-team member with me. And we worked more closely together at that point. And something political came up. And she's like, Doug, I'm just going to stop you right now. I like you and I want to I want to continue to like you. So we're not going to talk politics. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, that's that's definitely true. I know that's definitely true within my family. 
my my sister has like the complete opposite politics of me and mm. we've always been close but uh as we you know both become adults and drifted further and further away politically we just uh, mm. for the most part have to agree to not talk politics when we have family wow. get togethers so thanksgiving might have been a little weird this year maybe yeah i mean it was it was really tough so like my inner libertarian was really like dying when i did this but <laughs> my my christian sentiments led me to like okay well this is my family i need to be a peacemaker i need to die to myself a little bit my sister insisted that everybody get um like we're my wife and i are not mm. uh, vaccinated for reasons i knew where that, that was I'm, going mid-sentence yeah, man yeah i know exactly for reasons that i don't want to get into but sure we're not vaccinated it's not that i'm unconcerned about the covid 19 virus my father actually almost died in the past two months from covid 19 and is still recovering so I'm very familiar with the virus and how awful it can be. Mm-hmm. So we had a little bit of a contentious over, you know, fight over how holiday gatherings were going to go. And we came to a compromise of everyone would get tested two days before they get together, which my wife and my brother, <laughs> who are more close to, you know, my my political views were, you know, hemming and hawing about. And I was just like, yeah, you know, but like, this is family. It was like, we can, you know. So, you know, Christ instructs us to turn the other cheek and to a lot of things where we have to, you know, maybe be a little bit selfless and die to ourselves to a bit. Like if we can't do mm. that for family get togethers, then I mean, you know, I just, yeah. I don't know. At least that's where, that's where I came down sure. on it. But yeah, no, I, I get it. I mean, I appreciate that attitude about, you know, like sacrificing or whatever. Like it's one thing to say, all right, I'll just wear a mask because society and the state is telling you to. It's another to be like, you know what? My sister is just, you know, different from me and she really wants this to happen and whatever. And one way that I thought about it, I don't know, sometime middle of this year, it's just 2021, is this is a little bit of like meat sacrifice to idols. Like if they think it's a problem, it's like just oblige, you know, like. Yeah, it's it's, one thing to do it on a relational level. You know what I mean? Like if I'm friends with somebody or, or I'm related to them, those kind of negotiations and compromises are, mm-hmm. are natural yeah. parts of human relationships. And as Christians, I think we are kind of called to, I mean, you know, major sacrifices of moral principles we we obviously shouldn't cave into, but things yeah. that, that we can bear in good conscience, we should, even if it's something that we find to be silly or, you know, maybe not something mm-hmm. we would normally do. But yeah, it's completely different from when when the state or corporations are pushing things on us in a more you know, authoritarian or fascist manner. Yeah. You know, I'll segue this conversation about giving in, so to speak, or or sacrificing by wearing a mask or getting tested or whatever it is from that into dealing with engaging in politics by saying (laughs) that my guess is that, you know, the demeanor that you're talking about right now is like you're humble, you're dealing with family and you are sound like a really nice guy and my guess is that you're way more passionate about some of the issues that libertarians are dealing with. And so when you're in gear for, you know, growing the Mises Caucus or talking to people, you know, trying to make converts, if you will, with libertarianism, I'm sure you're just as nice, but like you might stick to your guns a little bit more Oh, absolutely. in, in those conversations, yeah. right? And I think that that's really important to highlight that I don't think that every libertarian who is okay wearing a mask is a traitor, right? Yeah. Or okay getting tested or for that matter, okay getting vaccinated for, yeah. you know, personal reasons, like whatever. But 
you know, they're not a traitor. <laughs> no. <laughs> if they if they do these things because there are, you know, everybody's in, you know, individually, we have to make those choices and how to be prudent with not only our health, but like what exactly we're doing with our own bodies and how we handle that situation with others, right? Yeah, 100%. And even, I'd go even further, although I'm critical of corporations and businesses pushing vaccines on their employees when it's done mm-hmm. in the context of, the government kind of pushing it on on them. I don't judge individuals who yeah. cave into doing so if they feel like, well, I can't afford to lose this job and I need to provide for my family. You know, some libertarians and even I've seen some Christian libertarians go, oh, well, you should just quit your job and trust God to provide for you. It's like, well, I mean, you know, certainly, I mean, my podcast is named Daniel 3 and I'm, I'm not adverse to the idea of like, you know, taking a hard stand for the gospel or to not bow down to tyranny or injustice, but these are definitely issues that matter, but I don't know if I can judge somebody if they, you know, in their situation felt that it was more appropriate to to get the vaccine and, and stay where they're at than to yeah. not get the vaccine. And, you know, especially when you have children involved, it's just to, to throw your children into the turmoil of, you know, losing a job and, and that kind of uncertainty, you know, I mean, I'm fortunate enough to work in a small family business where I don't have to deal with that. So I'm rather blessed and privileged in that regard. But I've had a lot of friends who are Christians and even Christian libertarians who've had to struggle with that. And um, I certainly don't envy them or judge them for for that position that they were put in. So tell me a little bit about how you became a libertarian. My guess is that you weren't one since birth. So although maybe, I don't know, maybe you're the one guest that's going to tell me, (laughs) you know, I really was. (laughs) No, I wasn't. Although I do have a friend who's like a second generation libertarian. And so he was raised that way. He's like the only, mm. the only person I've, I've met who can make that claim. So he yeah, had probably a rare breed. I was raised in a kind of like stereotypical, like conservative Republican evangelical household. My dad was a pastor, although not like a, not, not a conventional pastor. Um, he, ha- he has a, a couple of different ministries he's done his whole life. One was an international ministry where he um, helped to plant churches and, um, orphanages and and like women's centers in Ghana, Africa. And the other one was basically helping to plant churches here in the States. And so kind of like traveled from church to church growing up and which was actually very good looking back. I got exposed to a lot of different cultures and and different people through all that. You know, but my dad was he was a bit of a constitutional Republican. So, you know, the Republican Party as of late has sort of like it's better than a modern day Republican. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, he he actually voted for Gary Johnson back in 2016. So he he has libertarian leanings, but you know, not a not someone who's read Rothbard or Mises or you know had really dived deep into libertarian philosophy. I wasn't really raised in that kind of setting. I actually went pretty far to the left when I started to get more politically inclined mm. in high school, and then as a young adult, that was very caught up into the Bernie Sanders campaign and voted for uh, him in the 2015 primaries and voted for uh, Hillary Clinton in 2016. You know, then Trump won. I thought the world was going to end and then started to realize like, okay, well, it's not ending. Started to have just different experiences that started to get me to question the paradigm I had been thinking and also was starting to get a bit more serious about my faith and was becoming more mature in my theology. I had a very very immature, very, uh, you know, kind of like cherry-picked view of Christianity, the Bible. And it was, it was because I was, I was you know, very mixed with the world, very mixed with 
friends I had, I had met in high school and in my young adult life. And so, you know, just things in the Bible that I didn't like said, ah, well, that's either allegorical or not real. And so I had a very bad theology and then had a bit of a, a bit of a spiritual, uh, I, I guess, like uh, reawakening, reawakening. Yeah. Um, and that led me kind of to start to reject things that were happening in the left as the left started to get more and more radicalized post-Trump. And so then I kind of found myself adrift and and trying to, to like figure out where I fit in. And I started looking into, you know, I, I just was into podcasts a lot. And so I watched a lot of different interviews on the Joe Rogan show. And that uh, introduced me to people like Dave Smith, who had been on there. I also watched different libertarians go on the Dave Rubin show. And so I started to get interested in their ideas and decided to attend a local libertarian meetup, which happened to be attended by a lot of people who are members of the Mises Caucus. So about 2018 is when I started to get introduced to the writings of Rothbard and Mises and um, introduced to Tom Woods. And, you know, it was about that time where probably rapidly over a six month journey of starting to, to read all this stuff that, um, yeah, I kind of started, uh, zero to, to identify six months. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I wouldn't even say I, you know, the stereotypical, uh, expression, isn't it like, you know, the difference between a minarchist and an anarchist is six months. It's like, I don't even think I stopped at minarchy. I pretty much went from yeah. like, yeah, right. you know, kind of like weird centrist, not trying to like figure out what I believed in to just anarchist, you know, kind of in a very rapid period of time because it just made sense because it was you know i I didn't like the center where i was at because it was like well there's things on the right i think are true but there's things on the left that i kind of still sympathize with and you know i i always have like i don't like the cliche of saying libertarianism isn't left or right you know or something like that but i do like and i think dave smith puts it really well that everything that the left is good on we are better than them on on those things. And same with the right. The things that the right is good on were better than them on those things. Yeah. And so it's it's really like, you know, looking back, and I don't know if any if you can relate to this, but like looking back, it's like, you know, a lot of intuitions and things that I've cared about my whole life really haven't changed. It's just, you know, I was being fed propaganda from public schools, from my friends who were going to college, being taught all the, the crap that they teach in colleges now. So my intuitions were being filtered through all this garbage. And once the garbage was filtered out and I was, you know, given more choice meets as far as political philosophy goes, things started to actually come together in a very meaningful way. I think a lot of our listeners will find themselves in quite a bit of your story in something very similar. It's actually kind of a beautiful thing to, for me to sit on this end of the microphone and hear Especially only one end of a microphone. But anyway, this end of the conversation <laughs> and just hear that story, it's encouraging. And it's pretty amazing to witness somebody coming into, or not witness, I just heard your testimony, but like somebody coming into what is a consistent way of looking at politics and understanding that there has been sort of an indoctrination of values, of concepts, of ways of thinking that you had to step out of. And um, yeah, man, I'm, I'm really glad you're kind of on this side. I didn't know that it was that reason for you that you, you voted Democrat in the last one. Well, I guess not the last election, but uh, no, that, well, that's yeah, what's, great. What's funny is I actually didn't vote in the 2020 election. So my record is still stained in terms of the last time I voted. I voted Democrat. <laughs> 
from where I was to where I am now does feel like, you know, like sometimes I, I feel like I was literally like looking back, it's like, well, I was like literally like the Israelites lost in the desert mm. <laughs> and traveled this long way. And, you know, it, it's funny, like when you've had that kind of transition, it's, you know, the way the human mind works, it's very peculiar to find that uh, like a level of cognitive dissonance that's really hard to um, completely eradicate. Mm-hmm. You know, even like the more I've, you know, matured in and like both, this is true, both politically and and theologically even. It's really easy if I'm like, you know, fatigued, especially when I wake up in the morning and like I haven't had coffee yet and I'm tired and, you know, going through work and stuff. It's like, because I was so radically different, not that long ago. I mean, it really was just where it's 2021. So really like, you know, four or five years ago, I was such a different person. And so mm. there's always a little bit of, you know, cognitive dissonance there, but it's at the same time, it's it's kind of encouraging to be able to still remember and kind of like, it's, it's kind of like, a, like a, a mental state of mind where you can like remember the reasons and the emotions that you had that made you think the things that you used to think. And I find that it's actually helpful in when I'm able to converse with people, whether they're left or right, that like I can still understand where they're coming from. Yeah. Sometimes what I find, you know, in, in the conversations like we're going to be talking about here, where we're talking about political strategy and we're talking about like, like the real big thing that we're all trying to do is we're trying to, to ultimately in one way or another, create a more libertarian future by getting more people to come to that same realization that we did. But there's too many people that I think in the libertarian sphere who end up adopting a really like callousness or like, I don't want to say hate, but it's like a, a disdain or a prejudice towards the people who, who haven't, you know, woken up to the nature of the state and of politics yet. And it's like, well, these are the people that we're trying to reach. So we need to have a little bit of empathy for them and to remember when when we were still asleep to the things that we've awoken to. So you and I both had similar now I I became a libertarian about 15 years ago and when I say became a libertarian it sounds like I was converted but like it was a period of about 6 months to a year and I was always sort of leaning that direction anyway and a little bit I I thought that being a good Republican meant that you were kind of libertarian. And then I realized that was a ridiculous way of looking at it. <laughs> and that, you know, I mean, I guess, I guess a really good Democrat and a really good Republican, you know, if they're really consistent with their, <laughs> with their thinking, they would be libertarian. Right. But aside from that, you know, humorous fact, what happened for me was I found a way of thinking about politics that made complete sense, not completely, I wouldn't say a complete sense at the time. It has become more complete over time, but it made a lot of sense as a way of thinking about not only electoral politics, but about how I conduct a little bit of my life in, with respect to the state, right? Not like it's a way of life philosophy, the way like Ayn Rand didn't like libertarianism, so she came up with objectivism. I don't mean that, not a worldview sense, but in a like, okay, this is how I sort of think about engagement with politics. Because I was heading leftward in that direction theologically and a long time and alongside of that came all the politics. And I was like, well, this isn't right. Like this doesn't quite feel right. So libertarianism became this feels right. And I, I don't mean that as like, this is how I know it's true, but like it just felt right as the way of doing politics. Right. And there are a lot of people who 
gravitate toward ways of thinking that are cohesive, that sort of have a holistic approach, or that explain a lot. I recently heard someone, I'm pretty sure it was on the Reason podcast, I think Catherine Mangie Ward, I'll maybe misaccredit her, but I think it was her, said that there's this cognitive, the cognitive defect with libertarians is that they think everybody else cares about consistency. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And it's true. I mean, that's not false at all. Everyone else doesn't care about consistency. And it sounds like for you and me, there, there had to be a way of thinking about politics that comported with Christian faith that felt like it comported that way in its entirety. Not just in like, oh, well, we believe in social justice and helping the poor, so we need to have welfare. Or we believe in, you know, whatever it might be. We believe in just war, and so we need to fight terrorism. Or whatever the the thing might be, but there's like no consistency to it, right? Not everybody's like that. So I have a question for you a little bit later in this conversation, but before we get to that, in your mind, what are the sort of various current ways that libertarians or people who are liberty-minded, we can call them whatever we want to call them, are trying to affect change at the electoral level? Well, there's a lot of people who still try to work within the Republican Party, I think. You know, people who, like, I don't think that your main party establishment, like the actual politicians in the GOP, are close to libertarian. But I do think not perfectly, but a lot of people within the Republican Party or conservative, you know, Christian movement are a certain percentage of them that I think is sizable are rather libertarian, but are convinced that for various reasons, some of it's maybe reacting to the left, thinking the left's the biggest threat to liberty. And so the GOP is just a bulwark that we need to defend ourselves from that. And so a lot of people, I think, are still concerned about that maybe some more people who are more strictly libertarian and working within the GOP, maybe with more of a local focus. I think of people like Faux Bishop down in Florida. Then you have like the Free State Project up in New Hampshire and a lot of the libertarians up there work within the Republican Party. And I don't see a lot of libertarians trying to do much within the Democrat Party, although I know some libertarians who volunteered on the Tulsi Gabbard campaign just because they thought there was enough there to maybe do a little bit of outreach to the left. So I guess there's some people um, doing I was, that. I was registered Democrat for about two weeks <laughs> so that I, because, you know, in Pennsylvania, we can't vote in right. primaries that are, and the LP, I think by the time that it came around in Pennsylvania, the LPs was decided and so I decided to, I was going to vote for Tulsi Gabbard and the Democratic Party. Yeah. So I registered. And it just so happened that it was almost, it was a very whimsical decision because I was standing in line at the DMV to get my new license and I knew, realized that I could change my registration right away or my party affiliation right away. And I was like, all right, I'll do this. I walked out <laughs> realizing, oh crap, I'm going to get a whole bunch of emails. Right. <laughs> this is not going to be great. And then like she drops out and I switched it back. But yeah. I was one of those, like, I'll do my tiny little... I know voting really doesn't count, so to speak, kind of thing. But like, there was a, there was just something in it for me to be like, no, nah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna support one tiny shred of liberty that's going on in the Democratic Party. Oh yeah, I mean, you know, say what you want about Tulsi Gabbard. I mean, there's plenty to criticize, but oh, I sure. mean, she's yeah, yeah. she's the best thing to come out of the Democratic Party. And I mean, I don't even know how far back yeah. you have to go to find something decent. To be honest, mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. definitely 
one of the first prominent, not really as anti-war as maybe as probably you and I are, but you know, just compared to everyone else around her. She's level-headed about it. Right. Yeah. I mean, she's she's at least like against dumb wars that we fight for terrorists. <laughs> <laughs> Like, yeah, she actually right. is like, she's like, I actually believe in, like, a just war theory. And it's like, well, that's, compared to what we have now, mm. that's so much better, <laughs> like, compared to, like, these empire, the empire building and... Uh, the, the, the foreign you know, policy. Military. Yeah. Yeah, but the foreign policy of the United States is just war. Like, that's all we need is just war. <laughs> that's a, I've never heard that before. That's clever. <laughs> all right. So we've had our very short conversation about the one bit of libertarianism <laughs> Within the right. not libertarianism, but liberty loving in the Democratic Party. Let's go. Let's go elsewhere. <laughs> yeah. So there's people. You know, I, I feel like a lot of liberty minded people, if they engage in politics at all, it seems a lot of them still will focus either on the GOP or a lot of them will look at the LP. For the longest time, the Libertarian Party, I think, has been seen as a bit of a, a bit of the butt of a joke. I mean, it's literally the party of. Uh, Let's uh, privatize sidewalks and disband driver's licenses. And, oh, there's the fat naked guy who got up on the stage of a convention. And that's what people knew about us. And then Gary Johnson and what is Aleppo? And, you know, Libertarian Party, I feel like a lot of liberty-minded people, especially, you know, maybe more of our persuasion, probably not attracted to that. And certainly when I became more libertarian-oriented, I had very low view of the Libertarian Party. But, you know, things I think are starting to change on that front a little bit. You know, I'm involved in the Mises Caucus, like you said when you introduced me. And I think the Mises Caucus is another way that people who are liberty-minded are trying to engage in electoral politics. And I happen to think that it's a way that well, there's a few things. One, I think that it's a way to engage in politics isn't a huge compromise as far as your principles. And I think it's also a way to engage in politics that it's a little unorthodox and, and it's what I like about it because, you know, I think the game of politics is sort of not, the incentives are not in our favor, right? It's not a game you, it's a game that's meant to seize power. And so for libertarians who don't want power, who we basically reject the system of politics almost entirely, or even, yeah, I think even a consistent- Take over the world or leave it alone, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, even, even a libertarian minarchist is somebody who, you know, you can't look at the size and scope of our government and the way that our electoral politics is played and pretend it's anything close to minarchy. So anyone who's libertarian is against this and it's not a way that we would normally want to engage. And I think the Mises Caucus presents a strategy that allows someone of libertarian mindset to engage both principally and effectively through a strategy that I think is sort of like it's playing the game in a way that's not intended to be play through exploiting different loopholes and things, especially at the local level. Mm -hmm. So, and we can get into that, but that's a way that I'm, I'm very interested in. Yeah. So I'm personally not hugely familiar with the Mises caucus. I know listeners don't send me emails on how terrible libertarian I am, but uh, <laughs> I've been following it. It's like seeing its activities from a distance or whatever. And I mean, on the one hand, I'm like, okay, no one in their right mind really thinks that the Libertarian Party is going to become a major player naturally. We're not going to become the third party in a grassroots sort of effort. There's going to be some sort of chain of events that would have to create the situation where the LP becomes very popular. But that aside, is the strategy for the Mises Caucus, or is a strategy, I should say, because I'm sure there's more than just one thing, 
is it to dominate local? Is it to kind of gradually make its way through state legislatures? Like, how does how does all this work? Maybe and maybe for some of our listeners, this is the first time they're hearing about it, so that I can feel like I'm in good company. So yeah, sure. So we have what's called like a three pronged strategy, which I can explain rather quickly. So the first thing we do is engage in intra-party action, and this is to make the Libertarian Party just more effective. So we believe in removing people from the Libertarian Party who hold positions of power if they are unethical or if they are just incompetent or unable to, they're, they're not getting anything done. And that's not everybody in the Libertarian Party. And there's different levels. There's, of course, the national, the state, and then you have individual county affiliates and kind of varies state to state. If anyone's paid attention the last couple of years, they've probably heard of different things coming out of national that probably speak to problems that I would have with the national party. But we believe that, you know, the libertarian party should honestly, one of two things, it would be better for it not to exist than to exist as it has been. But if it is to exist, it should represent its namesake well. Mm. If it's going to call itself the libertarian party, the people running it should be people who understand the philosophy of libertarianism and who behave in an ethical fashion that you would expect of a libertarian and that are promoting strategies that are effective. So, you know, the first part of our strategy is to reform the libertarian party on all three levels, the state level, the national level, and then to form robust county affiliates to take the party in a different direction. The second thing is issue coalitions. So uh, this is something that actually comes out of something that Ron Paul talked about. You know, Ron Paul was big on issue coalition. It's a way, I think it's Frederick Douglass who said, you know, I'll work with anyone to do good and nobody to do bad. So the idea with issue-based coalitions is that if, you know, instead of, because obviously the Libertarian Party, like you kind of hinted at, is a, a minor party. And we don't have the kind of power or resources that the main two duopoly parties have. But what we can do is form issue coalitions with allies within either of the two uh, old old parties or in different, you know, lobbyist groups or special interest groups or et cetera. Uh, we can find ways to, you know, focus on things on an issue-by-issue issue basis to get legislation passed, to push for decentralization. So kind of taking things on an issue-by-issue issue basis. Uh, good examples of this would be like uh, Second Amendment sanctuaries, drug decriminalization, things of that nature. And then the last thing would be are really an emphasis on localism. And although, you know, there are state, federal, and local elections, and we have to run people on the federal level to maintain ballot access and things like that, you know, for the political party to exist, we believe that the main catalyst of where the Libertarian Party and where libertarians can be effective is at the local level primarily. You know, we don't believe that we can ever seize power at the federal level, and even to do it at the state level is not as impossible mm-hmm. as the federal level, but it, it's, you know, it's going to vary state by state. You know, it's, it's a little bit different to win a state race, maybe in like Vermont or Massachusetts than to like win in, you know, Texas or California. Yeah. So you, you kind of have to evaluate it on a case by case basis. But yeah. primarily, we're talking about the county and the municipal level where we can implement changes. And it's really a political strategy of, of decentralization and and nullification, which I don't know if you're familiar with like mm-hmm. nullification, but that's one of our big things is like, listen, we can't rain freedom down from on high, but what we can do, and it's very libertarian, is to, from the local level, to tell the state government or the federal government, no, we will not enforce your laws. Yeah. yeah. 
we will not comply. Yeah. Yep. So how does this fit in with your way of being a Christian? Well, for starters, you know, nothing I said there is at any point in conflict with what, you know, like to me, I, I view the relationship between Christianity and libertarianism to be very strong. I, I actually think that as a Christian that it would be wrong for you to try to seize power and to rule over other people. You know, I think Jesus says this clearly. I think the Bible teaches this clearly. As a Christian, I want to promote the ability of people to act uncoerced. And also, I, I don't want to support a giant Leviathan state that does a lot of evil, harmful things that are contrary to what I believe in, whether it's locking people up in cages for nonviolent crimes or, you know, dropping bombs on people halfway across the world. I mean, all sorts of things. And so this is a way that I can push back against evil, but without using means that are evil. I think it's hard-pressed for somebody to look at anything I I put out there and to say at any point what we are doing or what we are advocating for is evil. I actually think that the strategy that I laid out there is very reminiscent of Romans 12, where what Paul talks about, and it's echoing the Sermon on the Mount, you know, is that we should not overcome evil with evil, but rather overcome evil with good. And, you know, a lot of Christians, just of any political persuasion, and especially I find a lot Christian anarchists and libertarians tend to, if they're not pure pacifists, they tend to be very close to it. You know, I I consider myself somewhat of a pacifist, not so much in a sense that I am completely against self-defense or any sort of retaliatory force, but just that our general preference and mindset should yeah. be to avoid avoid violence and to avoid aggression. Yeah. Those are our preferences. And I find that this strategy is in line with that. But one thing that I always try to remind people is that if you do lean towards pacifism, if you are libertarian-minded and you think, well, we can't engage in politics because the system is, you know, like things that I would agree with on their face that like, well, the the political system is is, is meant to rule over people, to seize power, Jesus didn't engage in politics. We shouldn't either. I'm completely sympathetic to those points. What I would counter with is that while we should be pacifists, we have to understand that the root of the word pacifism is not to be passive. And we should not be inactive in the world. We should be taking a very active role in the world, I think, actually, as Christians. So while I am, I'm definitely on board with finding the least violent and the least aggressive routes possible, that doesn't mean that you know, and I'm I'm a podcaster, and I'm all for putting a message out there. But you know, that isn't all we should be doing. Just going out there and speaking the truth is not enough. I do think we need to go out there and to be light and salt in the world. That takes on many different shapes and, and forms. There's many ways that we can do this, and I think this is just one way that we can do it: is to engage in, in if you feel so called, and not everyone's going to have that calling. But if you do feel so called to maybe engage in politics. Mm-hmm. I think this is a strategy that is going to be the least compromising and I think really doesn't present any major compromise at all to someone of of Christian or libertarian leanings to push back against evil but without having to become that which you hate. I think I could think of one area where people might want to push back with that a little bit and think with respect to the compromise question. Let me frame it up this way. I know a lot of people who, especially conservative Christians, pro-life Christians, who they just can't stomach voting for a person if that person is pro-choice politically. Even if that person is happens to be anti-abortion, but they somehow have rationalized that it's okay for it to be legal. Okay, so I don't want to make this 
positioning about the abortion issue, but the idea is that there is a person that they just I'm like, what? I can't, can't vote for them. I know they're really anti-war, right? And I know that that's the issue of the day now. And I know that they're better on immigration. And that's one of the other issues of the day, but they also vote pro-choice. Like that's the kind of attitude that a lot of people might have. And so as you spelled out the three ways that the Mises Caucus engages, and you talked about like not that much compromise, I can imagine people worrying about working on that second issue, the issues coalition, like working with people to affect change in like drug reform or whatever, or criminal justice reform, which is by and large, with the exception of maybe Rand Paul and some libertarian GOP, libertarian Republicans or libertarian leaning Republicans, you're going to be working with Democrats. And I just kind of wonder if there's going to be like that same level of like pushback of like, well, you guys are you guys are working with the enemy. You're working with people who are, you know, high up in the left elite, right? Mm. And I understand. Like, I think Bernie Sanders and Ron Paul co-sponsored legislation. I think people kind of give a pass to that in a sense. But like, at what point do you say we're not going to partner with these people because they really aren't going to be in our best interest? Or is it is it okay to simply, you know, go to an issue and say, you know what, forget that we're different here on everything else or you know, mostly everything else, but like if we partner on this for the next year, we're going to end war, you know, we're going to end a war. What do you think about that sort of critique of like not partnering, not giving in to evil, but, you know, working with people who do? Anyway, what do you think? It's interesting. Um, So the first place my mind goes is, you know, just again, to highlight the framing of this, I always like that quote, you know, unite with anybody to do good and nobody to do harm. You know, certainly when working with anybody, you know, the first thing we evaluate is what are we trying to accomplish? And if the goal is being compromised by the people we're working with, that the goal is no longer good, well, then, you know, obviously we we can't work with them. If we're going to concede, well, the goal is good, but is it a compromise too far to work with somebody who believes in some things that we would find to be either distasteful or even abhorrent to our, our views and, and ethics and sensitivities? to do that good. I'm just trying to think of comparisons like, you know, if let's say somebody was trapped under a car and I needed to lift the car up to rescue the person underneath and the only person that was nearby who was volunteering and able-bodied to help me to lift this car up was pro-choice. I don't see any conflict there. It's Mm. like, well, I don't know if the person's views on abortion are relevant to our lifting the car off the person trapped (laughs) under their vehicle in the same way, if we're working on criminal justice reform and we're talking about, like, you know, decreasing the power that police have to, let's say, stop people from going to parks or uh, from, you know, <laughs> being protected from no-knock raids or, uh, you know, or, or more on the legal side, like ending red flag laws or, you know, like, hey, you know what, like, we, we might have views as Christians that maybe things like marijuana or different, you know, substances you know, there's some maybe varying opinions of that within the church. I mean, but some people might go, you know, things like excessive use of marijuana or psychedelics or or harder drugs. You know, we wouldn't advocate for those, but there's nothing good or Christian about taking those people and and locking them up in in jail and, and having the world's biggest prison population mm. as a result of this. So, you know, there's something good about decreasing that violence. And I don't know if you know, while we're working on that good to decrease the harm of 
the criminal justice system that the people we're partnering with in that endeavor, if their beliefs on abortion or any other issue that's unrelated to the work we're doing, you know, really comes to mind. Just or even like would say like you're working at a job. I mean, it's like I don't know where you could draw that line to be like, well, if you're rescuing someone from under a car or saving someone from a fire or you're maybe at a mm-hmm. workplace and you're working yeah. on a project, it's like, you know, where do you draw that line? Like, well, you work with people towards certain right. ends if they have bad beliefs, but not these. I, I, I So that would, that would be my response. I think with politicians, it has to do more with the high profile visibility of some of these things. Maybe not high profile, but like the visibility and the optics and things like that, which actually brings me to an issue that I think is one of the reasons I think people have a hard time engaging with libertarian issues and ideas is that, I'll use an example. You're in Pennsylvania, I'm in Pennsylvania. You and I have both been privy to the shenanigans that's going on in the Wolf administration. And also the Republican, okay, because there's no libertarians in the state legislature that I'm aware of, the Republicans who are actually standing up against him, right? And the ones who are even more outspoken. So there's actually one that lives very close to me in my neighborhood. He's like three properties down on on the backside of those properties. And, you know, during COVID, he walked the neighborhood a lot just to stay active. And we got to chatting and and I got to learn about things from him. And And he's not one of the outspoken ones that you might see on Facebook a lot. But like, I actually think about this a lot because... I would love to like support this guy, but like, uh, he probably supports a lot of other things I don't want to support. Right. And I realize that voting, I don't, I'm not bringing this in about voting, but like, it's that sort of same idea that like people are attracted to personalities. And that's the problem that I see is that we're attracted to personalities and that we want to be, I mean, that's why Trump is elected. Okay. <laughs> I mean, he made a lot of promises and and said things that people needed and wanted to hear and he stood up against the establishment and there was a lot of value in some of the things he represented. I don't want to overstate that, but he was elected for his personality, <laughs> okay? And sure. it didn't help that he went up against somebody whose personality was just not not warm, right? And so you have politics as, you know, you and I probably think of these things as issues, right? We think of this as this is an issue of right and wrong, that we're imprisoning people for nonviolent offenses. This is an issue of right and wrong that we are bombing the crap out of the Middle East and basically being a world empire. When I say we, everybody knows I'm saying the state, not we, us. So for us, it's an issue of right and wrong, but for many people, it's like we just need the right people in power or we need honorable people to be able to help make these decisions. And there is a sense in which you do need to have the right people in power, but that's not going to solve everything right? Like the right people in power would relinquish the kinds of power that they shouldn't be having, right? <laughs> this, that would be the quote unquote right people in power. I'm going to talk like a leftist <laughs> for a second because all they say is things like, well, if we just had the right economic policies, well, like, duh, by definition, they <laughs> whatever works best would be right. So anyway, I, I don't know if I've, I've made a cogent question or, or response there other than I wanted to point out that a big issue that we have is that it's very personality-based. And I think that's a very, I don't know if we should lean into that. Like, you know, Ron Paul was a big deal, right? And that helped. And even Jacob Hornberger, he was a big deal in in many ways, not quite as big a deal as Ron Paul because he wasn't in the GOP. 
And so, like, do we lean in and say, all right, well, we're going to have to come up with a personality that gets a little bit more attention because we're not getting it on boring issues that people, well, issues that people find boring, but that are truly an issue of right and wrong. I don't know what thoughts you have about the personality problem. Um, I'm trying to connect this to, I mean, is it a personality problem in terms of like just like the effectiveness of what we're trying to do is what you're getting at? Or in terms of the, because there, there was a lot. I, I didn't yeah. know. The, no, there was yeah. a lot. I, I was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's 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 my way of uh, saying something very simple in a very complex way. I know. I, I do the no, same thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so no, I'm not pointing out a problem per se with the Mises Caucus. I'm pointing out a problem with the society at okay. large. I was just because at first yeah. I was I was I was like because we were on the topic of like I was, are things yeah, compromised was... and then we. So I'm just trying to make sure I'm following along. No, that's so good. Um, my, my I, no, wife, I definitely. Um, my wife tells me that I I do this where I'm like on one topic and subtly <laughs> shift to another, I, and but, I'm but, just talking yeah, out I've, loud and and whatever. I've done no. this. Yeah, and my wife's given me the same same uh thing too. So like I. I <laughs> I totally relate to it, but I was just trying to make sure that like it it wasn't me in this particular case. Good thing that, like, I like aren't truly formal settings, right? <laughs> <laughs> so no, I, I definitely think as far as um you know, so there there definitely is a disadvantage to working within the LP versus the GOP, which you ha- highlighted, which is exposure. And you know, Ron Paul certainly got more exposure working within the GOP than he did within you know the LP because he didn't run as an LP candidate back in 1988. So. That is a fair objection. There is a cost. You know, there's always a pro and a con, right? And there's trade-offs. The pros of Ron Paul working in the GOP are definitely not to be understated. The trade-off, though, was that what was the long-term effect on the GOP? Really nothing. And really, like, Ron Paul wasn't able to build anything that lasted within the GOP. He did affect the change that, that didn't they make changes to their caucus methodology or something after him because he got so much support. Oh, I, I, mean, think, I mean, I think it, it changed it, them in a negative way. Right, yeah. <laughs> so that's I just want to point out that Ron Paul made an indelible effect on the GOP. What, I mean, yeah, <laughs> I, I guess what I mean is he didn't change it for like... I like, understand. He didn't move the GOP more towards him. That's totally true, yes. Yeah, I mean, certainly there's a lot of people who were inspired by him. And really, the people who started yeah. the Mises Caucus, Michael Heiss and people like Dave Smith and Tom Woods who were involved. I mean, huge Ron Paul guys. I mean, these were, you know, Dave Smith says that Ron Paul is what brought him into the Liberty Movement. And Ron Paul did that for for so many people. You know, I mean, I can't, like, sometimes it, like, makes me nauseous how many times I, as a state organizer, when I'm letting, because part of my role is accepting new members into the caucus. And, I mean, you know, I can throw up from how many times I've heard people go on about Ron Paul and how he they brought them to understanding liberty. And it's like, you know, I'm being a little hyperbolic there, but like, it's just yeah. like, he did have a profound effect. And I don't want to understate that, but it's just like, the problem is like, once he stopped running for office, like that effect just died. And there was no long-term, like, so that movement that I think was actually really good for our political conversation and for our society died and they didn't know what to do. And the people who founded the Mises Caucus, they're trying to bring that back. They, they've actually, you know, said this very explicitly that they want to create like the Ron Paul movement 2.0. But the reason why we're doing it within the LP is that if you can change the culture of the LP and get basically people like Ron Paul, we have some, you know, I mean, Dave Smith is on Joe Rogan and Tim Pool 
And, you know, he he might not be at that Ron Paul level of exposure yet, but he he very well could be. And it's a different age now, you know, 2021 versus 2008 and 2012. I mean, YouTube and podcasting and alternative media have a huge presence now that didn't exist back then. And we're also like the GOP has gone through Trump, which certainly has done a lot to <laughs> to change the, I think the Trump the, has the, gone through the GOP. It might have been you know, <laughs> right, a little, <laughs> little bit of both. So the the GOP has changed a lot, and we know that we can't build anything long term there. So this is a bit of a lower time preference strategy. Are we going to see immediate payoffs from this in the same way that we could maybe working within the GOP? Probably not. And certainly people who have a higher time preference who are really concerned about like, well, we need to stop something now. The LP might not be the best strategy if you think that we need to concentrate some sort of defensive response towards things going on now at least at the like you know the federal level we're we're we're, we're not going to do that really i don't even think in 20 years we'd be able to do much at the federal level mm. through the lp it's just not feasible to be fair i mean ron didn't do much legislatively he did, yeah. so really there's that's not even an option there but he at least got a lot of exposure but the yeah. idea here is that over the long term we're going to build something that we think can be self-sustaining and that isn't just like the short bright burst of fire that then fizzles out, but something that becomes a a light in the darkness, so to speak, like a, a lighthouse that that continues to shine out into the dark fog. Like that's ideally what we want the Libertarian Party to be. Like so many people, when they start to get disillusioned to the duopoly and to party politics, you know, libertarianism is, you know, a very natural alternative that a lot of people will start to consider. But when the Libertarian Party is trying to figure out a charitable way to say this, um, lukewarm and very naive and unattractive in their messaging and persona, I mean, it just, you know, people don't get much further than that. But, you know, part of why, like, one of our, the first part of that three-pronged strategy is the, is the intra-party stuff is if we had, you know, like, what did Gary Johnson put a face in the Libertarian Party that was very like a goofball or socially liberal and fiscally conservative. And it was very uncompelling. But if we promote a message from the Libertarian Party that is, you know, echoing the the writings of, of Mises, who talked about what true liberalism was, which was about social cooperation in the marketplace, which was about Self-ownership is important because it's the foundation of a peaceful society, of Rothbard, who who talked about the anatomy of the state, and all the great libertarian thinkers. If we put the actual, like, meat of the philosophy forward, and then we kind of, like, follow after Ron Paul, and we just tell the truth about the most important issues in our culture today that people care about, and this is where George, George Organson and her campaign fell. It wasn't that she was unprincipled. But it was that like during the COVID-19 lockdown, she was talking about civil asset forfeiture. It was like, you know, do you not recognize the moment that you're in was was my my issue yeah, with that yeah. campaign. You know, so it, it's about the message and also recognizing the moment. And what made Ron Paul so inspiring was that he told the truth when it was the hardest to tell the truth. And, you know, he got a lot of pushback from the party. But he gained a lot of support 
and inspired a lot of people because of that. Yeah. And there's something very like now, the Mises Caucus, I want to be clear, it's not an explicitly or even implicitly Christian organization, but there's something very Christian about getting up and proclaiming the truth no matter what the consequences are. So earlier I referenced a question I wanted to ask and get your take on, and it had to do with the kind of people that we want to reach. And you and I both have friends. You you mentioned, you know, that you you sometimes make better headway with uh, people who are not part of your, like, close circle or whatever. And, you know, we kind of had a joke about what that was like. And there's a lot of ways of being libertarian. You know, so there's the thick versus thin argument about libertarianism. And then there is the, like, there's the factions within libertarianism where there's, like, the Beltway libertarians. You know, you have the Mises libertarians. You have... You know, there might be more than those two. Those are kind of the two that kind of come to my mind typically. And I know that there are types of people out there who will just never be open to the kinds of ideas that I hear mostly from like the Mises sphere of presenting libertarianism. But they would be open to hearing things like, that you would normally hear from like Reason, maybe even Cato and some of those other types of organizations, which are, you could say that they're not as hardcore. I don't think that's fair to say that about them, although maybe, I don't know. I'm not here to judge that, but I'm trying to just make a presentation here of a question. Is it okay for me when I'm having a conversation with somebody and realize that like, okay, well, they're not going to be in they're not going to be into like privatizing everything, right? And I, obviously, I'm not going to go that way with a random person unless I'm trying to be provocative if they're a friend or something. But like, if they say to me, you know, this universal basic income thing seems like a really good idea. Is it okay for me to be like, all right, well, sure, let's go for that. But we have to abolish everything else, right? Like abolish all of the other sort of welfare related, you know, support system and this becomes the streamlined version. Like, if that's really what you want, like, there are libertarian economists who have said, okay, that's not such a bad trade-off, right? And there's been libertarian economists that would say that given the system that we have, universal healthcare would be better than this crappy system of, of U.S. healthcare that we have, even though a free market would be better, but that ship has sailed. And so, I mean... Are we betraying our principles when we try to convert people to a libertarian way of thinking by thinking more about individual freedom, even though it's not like an ideal policy to, to accept? Does that make sense? Like, can we appeal to people with the, you could call them like not as purist libertarian arguments, or do we have to like sort of s stick to, nope, everything needs to be privatized kind of, <laughs> kind of stuff? Yeah. So there's two different like things I want to talk about in my answer here that I was thinking as you were asking it. So on one hand, I'm in agreement with your concern and, you know, certainly like we're not going to convert another million libertarians by, I mean, maybe we will. I, I don't know the right number. We're not going to convert everybody though that could be converted by just going around going taxation is theft and the state of the cult. You know what I mean? Like trying to be as purely principled as we can when we're engaging with people or even approaching it from that strict Misesian sense of property rights and stuff, you know, and, and trying to 
fully privatize anything is not going to reach everybody. Yeah. I mean, we're you know, really far off from that for a lot of people. Right. Yeah. The Mises Caucus certainly, although if people ask us those questions, we're not going to shy away from those answers. That's not really how we do our outreach. We have a very specific platform that we run on that's really like, it's it's a very bare bones platform very skeletal, I, I guess is how I would describe it in terms of like hitting the key issues that matter the most. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, property rights is definitely one of them, but you don't even need to advocate for property rights in the sense of like a full, you know, Rothbardian and ANCAP way. Just, you know, start with the basic, just like, listen, we believe in, you know, just basic capitalist free market norms of private property and we reject like socialism. And, you know, so like we, you know, just pushing in that direction, which I think it is crucial. We need mm-hmm. we need to have we need to teach people economic literacy. But yeah, we have to recognize you know we got to get people what milk before they have bread and bread before they have meat, and we have to you know meet the person that we're talking to where they're at. It doesn't make sense to teach you know calculus to somebody who hasn't even finished pre-algebra. Yeah. So we, we we you know what I mean. So, but then you know we we focus a lot on like the issues that we think matter most that aren't necessarily like you don't have to be coming at them from a pure proprietarian libertarian perspective. I mean, we talk about war, the war on drugs, the Federal Reserve, it may be a bit more of a niche issue, but criminal justice reform and just localism in general. I think a lot of people are really open to the idea that, and really like, especially now that like, you know, government's better when it's more decentralized and localized. And maybe people in California shouldn't have any major say on how people in Florida live and vice versa and trying to force all of us to operate by the same Hmm. rules is a little crazy. I mean, there's a lot of people on the left who are even starting to say that. I just, uh, just recently saw a tweet that, um, I think the Supreme court's hearing an abortion case regarding Mississippi, I believe, or something. And somebody tweeted, if, if Roe is overturned, blue states should secede. Yeah. We're like, all right, sure. We can yeah. go for that. <laughs> Sarah Silverman was talking about this in uh, a podcast maybe like a, a month ago where she was like, yeah, maybe all the blue states should secede, let the red states, you know, the blue states will have vax mandates and the red ones can secede and they won't have. It'll be like America one and America two. And, you know, I was like, hey, your terms are acceptable. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, I you, mean, you know what I mean? So I, I think there are definitely things that are, that we have to focus on, like I said, like, you know, what made Ron Paul appeal to people of, you know, he appealed to people on the left too and, and people at center. And he talked about the issues that Americans cared about the most at that time. And so we, I think that's part of the answer. But I mean, the other thing is we do have to be careful to not be too secret sensitive. And what I mean by that is, and I'll draw a corollary to the church here, which I would imagine you're sympathetic to, like, it's not helpful to, muddy our message so much that we're trying to trick people into being libertarians. Just like when you see churches putting on services that are, you know, all this, you know, very secularized music, the lyrics are watered down. The message is, you know, if it quotes the Bible at all, it might, you might be lucky. And, you know, I mean, just think of like a Joel Olstein style church. It's like, do we really want to trick people into calling themselves Christians? But then like, they're Christian in name only. That's also not the answer. So yeah, right. there's a balance that has to be achieved there. And, you know, we want to present a palatable message where we meet people where they're at. 
but we cannot become so seeker sensitive Mm -hmm. that it doesn't help to grow the libertarian party and just make it something that reflects the established, you know what I mean? Like I don't want the Mises caucus or anyone working in the libertarian party to just like 10 years from now, it's just a third party. And all we've done is go from a duopoly to a triopoly. It's like, that's, that's not progress. If we have this really watered down, like, you know, it's just GOP light. Yeah, GOP light or Gary Johnson-esque yeah. style libertarianism. That's not what we need. And, you know, in, in the same way that a lot of Christians are very, I hate to say it, but like ashamed of the gospel at times and ashamed of 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 the scriptures, we as libertarians cannot be ashamed of telling the truth. So we need to be sensitive in how we do it and focus on what's important meet people where they're at 100%. But the minute we are compromising on the truth is where we go astray. Well, I don't know if there's a better way to end that. So I'm gonna let that be how we wrap this up. Jacob, I really appreciate you coming on and uh, having this a little bit longer conversation than uh, than I'm used to having. So it's been great. It's been fun, man. Yeah, thanks for ha- having me on. That was a lot of fun. And Again, big fan of all the work you guys do. So um, I hope oh, to I continue that. to collaborate on stuff in the future. So if everybody has been done listening to my podcast here, where can they go to listen to your podcast? So Because they can't can... listen to yours until they're done all 253 <laughs> episodes of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Just so you know. That's, right, a, that's yeah. a legal agreement that uh, Jacob and I made. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, with a, a social contract, I guess, or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> Anti-social, really. Right. <laughs> so as far as so you can follow me, I'm very active on Twitter and Facebook. My Twitter handle is at Biblical Anarchy. And uh, on Facebook, it's Daniel 3 Biblical Anarchy. The podcast is very easy to find on most, you know, YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify. If you just search for Daniel 3 Biblical Anarchy. I'm also on Odyssey, just recently got on there, which is a more decentralized alternative to YouTube. And I have a website, Daniel318.com, where you can find all of my stuff there as well. Excellent. And if uh, you want to learn more about the Mises Caucus, takehumanaction.com is where you can find out more about what what things we're doing. That's a great domain name, man. Yeah. (laughs) That's really good. All right. Thanks again. Yep. Thanks, Doug. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com.